Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. Uh, welcome back, everybody. I hope everyone had a good lunch. Uh, my name is Ethan Seltzer, and I'm going to be uh, kind of the ringleader up here, at least for a little while this afternoon. We're going to be talking about leadership, and uh, this is kind of the perennial issue uh, that comes up, um, kind of the search for leaders, the uh, form of leadership, uh, the meaning of leadership, the, um, the leadership of leadership. Uh, so we're going we're gonna to lead right into that. Um, we've got four uh, fantastic, five fantastic panelists, um, and uh, they will all be coming your way in eight-minute segments. And the purpose for that is uh, in limiting their time, because they all have a lot to say and we could actually um, spend a lot more time with them, is to have plenty of time for questions from you. So our goal is to get you thinking about questions about this topic, which you've thought about and heard about at conferences for a long time, so that uh, when we get to the Q&A, it can be really about the topic. And so we, we're going to count on you, and we're going to look for you uh, to be part of this whole conversation. Um, so just real quickly, kind of introducing our panelists, I'll just introduce them briefly right now. They may have a few more things to say about who they are and what they do. Um, first up, uh, speaking for us today will be Eli Singer, who's right behind me here. Eli's from Toronto, uh, specializing in social media, branding, community building, and disruptive innovation. So we're going to uh, see. We're going to see. It's rocky. Yes, yeah, right. It's a it's a tough job, but someone's got to do it. Um, uh, he um, okay. I've said we'll hear more from Eli in just a second. Then we'll hear from Katie uh, Locker, um, who is the program director for the Hudson Weber Foundation in Detroit, Michigan. Um, and I should say that uh, in your program are brief biographies of all these people. And the thing that struck me about it is that every one of them is involved in their community in a wide range of ways. So um, it bears kind of looking at those just to kind of see the fact that they may be employed by the Hudson Weber Foundation, but man, you know, she's involved in all kinds of projects and boards and other kinds of things in, in Detroit. Um, after uh, Katie, we'll hear from Erin uh, Contour, uh, who's here. Erin um, is chief of uh, products and partnerships at Everyone Counts, among other things, among a large number of other things, now living here in San Diego, but previously uh, at Microsoft, uh, not too far up the road from me. Then we'll hear from Josh McManus, who's from Chattanooga, co-founder and creative strategist for Create Here, a nonprofit act tank in Chattanooga. So we'll hear about act tanking. Uh, and then finally, um, uh, we will hear from Dan Yankelovich, um, who is probably familiar to many of you here, uh, who has uh, been at the forefront of people thinking about uh, how it is that we get engaged with each other and kind of what it means when we do. And we've asked Dan to kind of uh, pull together some of the themes that he hears from these speakers and help launch the conversation that we hope we'll all have together. Um, so we've got our timer up there ready to go. She's going to be ruthless. Uh, if someone goes past eight minutes, she's going to throw herself onto the stage and flop up and down like a fish. Um, so don't go. make her do that. Okay. And with that, uh, Eli, take it away. Great. Thank you very much for the introduction. So eight minutes, and uh, great, the first visual is not up there. Anyways, uh, it, I've got 23 slides, so we're going to move pretty quickly. Um, I've, I, I, I've started an agency in Toronto recently. It's called Intrinsic Partners, and it's a hybrid consultancy. Um, it's a hybrid of consultancy and a communications agency, and uh, we'll get into some of the things that we do a little bit bit later. Uh, it's, um, let's see, we can jump to the next slide. 
here are, we design social media, new media communication strategies. Here are some of our clients in the corporate world. Um, we're moving in, starting to do some work with the MoMA in New York, too, which is really quite exciting. And just a little bit about our philosophy. Uh, it's really around marrying uh, culture, community, and commerce. And culture can be um, your internal corporate culture or the culture of your organization. A community, who are the stakeholders you need to reach out to in commerce? How do you... How do you monetize what you do in existing ways or new ways that are enabled by uh, um, by social media? And mobile is a really, in, you know, in addition to these three spaces, social media, placemaking, and mobile are really exciting places for us. And, uh, you know, we've got just some really interesting members of our team. Well, one of them here, one of my partners, Will Pate, who's in the back of the room here, just got back from doing some blogging training over in Cairo. And uh, he's also sits on the visible, uh, on, on the board for visible government up in Canada. Canada, so you know, a think tank that helps um, connect government and technology together to be more uh, citizen active. Anyways, I think I'll just keep on rolling through stuff so we can get into the work that we want to share today. And I think the next slide, oops, here, I think I'm going to talk about some of the uh, civic engagement activities happening in Toronto. And Toronto is it's a really interesting place. Um, these are just some of the statistics of how people are using the internet in Canada. We have one of the, the richest online communities anywhere in the world. Uh, in Toronto specifically, 70% of the city is on Facebook, and that's just an indicator. Um, and, and so I think one of the really interesting things is, because this has been going on for years in Canada, um, in Toronto, and... So one of the interesting things to share is how, how what's been prototyped in Toronto um, can be something that can be exported to other communities uh, now that other parts of North America are starting to get to the level of penetration that we have. Also, we have one of the most diverse cities in the world, so it's an interesting testbed for cross-cultural experiences. I'm going to tell three stories today, uh, one around a website called Spacing, one around an initiative around Transit Camp, and then further into urban engagement. And the whole way is, to t I think, to tell the story about how innovations really bubbled up from the bottom in the city um, to then become part of just the discourse of how the city operates. Um, Toronto's got a wonderfully diverse blogging community, uh, photo blogs, video blogs, transit blogs, urban blogs, architecture blogs, um, and, and we have the, uh, the second largest volume of discussion around uh, public space of any, of any city in the world right after New York City. And I think the reason that is is because of a blog called Spacing. Spacing is... Um, Spacing is the locus for all the conversation about public space issues in Toronto. You should check it out, uh, spacing.ca. They're started as an activist group called uh, the Public Space Committee, and they split into, they continue to have the activist group, but then there's this civic activation arm. Um, they've been around for five years. Um, they've, this is the blog. Uh, they've been around for five years, and they have all kinds of conversations. The writers for the blog are, have emerged to be writers of traditional press, also members of the community, activists, photographers, you name it. Really rich, uh, rich community, and it's the hub of the whole city. Um, they also have a publication. I brought a whole bunch of with me here. Um, their, their magazine, Spacing Magazine, and uh, they publish four issues a year. And... Um, and it's one best magazine in the country two years in a row. And it's really exciting how, you know, typically you see the magazines trying to figure out how to use the Internet. This has gone completely the other way. Um, how communities have bubbled up online to create a magazine, uh, which is now, um, you know, it's read by, it's must-read it's must by anyone involved in government, in, certainly in the city and the province, and then wider across the country. And it's a mashup of contributors, again, from traditional mainstream media and new media. Um, and it kind of really sets the stage for public discourse. They also have 
a whole bunch of really interesting ways to kind of create community. So early on, um, what they did was they created, brought a whole bunch of buttons and magazines to share. They created these buttons um, that each has a, a look tied to the individual subway station. So people would go out and buy these buttons and wear them, and they kind of show pride in not just civic infrastructure, but their neighborhoods where they come from. They made $50,000 on selling these buttons in the first year, which underwrote the whole publication. And they've gotten to the point now where they're starting to host architectural design exhibits, where they start engaging the next level of civic leaders, um, design schools, urban planners, architects, to design how the city could look different. Um, and then the results of this city, uh, the, you know, a wonderful array of jurors, and the, uh, all the prize winners are, are they're all shown in City Hall. So as you can see, like things have really bubbled up and become part of how the city operates. They have, uh, Toronto had a Web 2.0 City Summit last year, and uh, which was really kind of pushed upon them by this community that really wanted to learn how to engage. Um, Anyways, I'll keep on rolling, but you, you can see how the story kind of advances. Um, I was part of the team that's designed uh, the brand and the identity for the Toronto New Waterfront, which is the largest waterfront revitalization in North America. 30-year um, build-out, we created a map of what the city was going to look like when it was all finished, inserted it in the magazine so it would go to everyone to help start the conversation around the city about how things were going to move forward. Um, and they've also launched a video, uh, an audio podcast now. Full stop on spacing. Um, how does this then start to intersect directly with uh, urban engagement? He, that, this is, uh, I guess, I'm trying to run ahead here so quickly. Toronto's Public Transit Authority, third largest in North America, 2.4 million daily riders, um, really website. And uh, the, the blogosphere got really upset at this. And so they, we designed an experience called Transit Camp, where we pulled together all kinds of uh, people involved in web design, architecture, um, people in civic government, people in media, people from the TTC to collaboratively come together and re-envision what the, what the city of Toronto's new website could look like. Um, the outputs from this, and st this was created as a third space, and uh, I think there were 200 participants on over two days. It was positioned as a solutions playground because otherwise everyone was just going to come in and slam the TTC for how bad they are uh, at customer service and what have you. So we really had to set the tone so it could be very positive. Um, and from here, what we noticed was there was, a, you know, the TTC had all these kinds of benefits in addition to getting all this new information that they could pump into their RFP for uh, the design of their website. Oh, I'm running out of one minute here, so I'm just going to kind of <laughs> jump ahead to the part where they just launched a regional, tra uh, regional transit planning authority. And... Um, They've created a sub-brand called Metronauts, which is all about civic engagement, which basically takes the transit camp methodology and scales it across the entire province. Um, the last thing I wanted to talk about is just building capacity um, for engagement and co-creating a narrative around spaces. We were involved in, uh, in branding the downtown Washington, D.C. bid. We built a website, this is a couple years ago, called Share Your D.C., where people could come in and upload their stories, their photos, their Flickr videos, their YouTube videos to kind of um, start sharing... As, as part of the public engagement process for, uh, for rebranding the city as inputs. We've now taken this process and pushed this a lot further. So during the typical... Oh, I have to stop. Yeah, that's good. I'll, I'll stop. Uh, I'll save some for later. No you fish. got it. That's very nice. Thank you. Thank you. I'm the program director of the Hudson Weber Foundation, which is located in Detroit and um, has existed for more than 70 years in Detroit. And so we come to leadership from a very um, 
traditional background and a very classic background. Um, we have 70 years of history of focusing on quality of life in Detroit, and we give out uh, approximately $7 million a year in, in the city. So we, um, in the last year, uh, together with the president who's sitting out in the audience, um, uh, started to think about how we could provide a new vision for Detroit and focus our energies um, in a different way. And what it's evolved into is a vision that we share with folks. Um, but we went out. I'm going to try. We went out. There's a little surprise for Brian Boyle in the audience. Um, <laughs> we went out and talked to some of our friends that we knew were thinking about quality of life in the city of Detroit and were thinking differently about a next Detroit and not the old Detroit, and many of you are reading in the paper about the old Detroit. Um, and we really feel that there's a future for Detroit that is different and is led by a different group of leaders. And when we went and talked to Brian, Brian was one of the most uh, inspirational people because he reminded us that the assets of Detroit are the people of Detroit. And the people of Detroit have an interest in connecting to something, and we have historically not had something to connect to. We haven't had a vision to engage in that draws people together. And one of the things, I actually pulled the exact notes that I have from talking to Brian, and um, he said um, the people need to share a common vision and context, but they don't actually have to work together. Um, and this was something that we really took. What is a shared framework that's sort of an old-school foundation environment that stays in the shadows can um, build among a whole community? And we focus on the relationship building um, in our work. And so how could we translate a vision? And th the vision that had been offered in Detroit is traditionally offered by sort of traditional civic leadership, elected officials, our business organizations, the city government. Those visions were not um, as forward-thinking as we'd like them to be. We're focused on silver bullets. The Renaissance Center was going to save Detroit. Super Bowl was going to save Detroit. If we could just get the Olympics, it would save Detroit. Um, and we were more focused on wh what could we do around the energy of the city and what could we do with this next generation that wants to be in the city and is already in the city and activists but they don't know how to connect to it. So we took some data points um, that we've been learning from a lot. I'm going to go really quick. So Chicago, the red and blue dots represent um, households, college educated under 35. And some of this is old data. Uh, uh, but um, red is households without children, and blue is households with children. But you see the, the incredible density in the, in the center of the city. Uh, here's Minneapolis. Um, again, a lot of density in the center of the city. Here's Detroit. Um, uh, the two, you can see Detroit has two little blips, and that's Highland Park and, and Hamtramck that are islands in our city. And we just um, we push all of our young talent outside of the city. Uh, if we looked proportionally like Chicago, we would have over 100,000 households that are under 35 and college educated. If we looked like Minneapolis, we would have 86,000 proportionally. Uh, we have 15,000. So we came to this conclusion and a conclusion that everyone in the city of Detroit can agree to, and it's that if we don't get younger and better educated, we're going to get poorer. So we knew all that data. We'd been focusing around that data, and we got to 15,000 by 2015. Let's double our young, talented population by 2015. Um, that's the vision that we're organizing around, but our strategy is that our best ideas will go further if we don't have to go with them, which I actually heard at the November CEOs for Cities meeting. <laughs> um, 
And we really focus on how do we reinforce and find new leaders. We don't ever want to be out in front of this. Our goal is that at some point no one will ever know that Hudson Weber was involved. Um, but we, in the nine months that we've been out talking about this, and it's built more and more, um, we now hear 1515 in people's um, sort of conversation. Um, who are we trying to build our vision with? Um, not the traditional business groups, not traditional government, traditional corporate leaders. Um, they're way more focused on regional issues. Um, they don't they tend to focus on the old Detroit and old systems and tell us why it won't work. We're not focusing with young professional groups because they don't tend to be leaders for us. They tend to be followers. Um, we're focused on self-interested leaders. I could talk for a really long time, and Carol um, could talk for a little long time about the work we're doing with anchor institutions who see the value of young talent. Um, we're coordinating with other philanthropy. We're co coordinating with employers. We're coordinating with um, young, talented Detroiters. Um, we're focusing on this idea of building a city for people who don't live here yet. And people who get that, who get that we want to move towards a new city. Um, Brian Boyle could talk to you for a long time about the 8%, 20% theory of those 8% that are, will go and be the pioneers and do just incredible things. The 20% that will take that risk once the 8% have gone and then we get the other 80%. We can only go after the 8 20% in Detroit right now, and we have to find those people out there amongst us. So you're a leader, probably a business leader, who's decided that you're going to live in San Diego. I'll tell you what's going to happen. You're going to arrive here, and you're going to think you've moved to heaven. Or at worst, you're going to think you've moved into somebody's vacation permanently. It's a pretty good deal. You'll be here for a little while, and you'll start to wonder what's wrong. You'll say, there's no there there. You'll say, I don't find it easy to meet people. You'll say, why is this paradise so deficient? Where's all our, where are our better schools? Where are our better public institutions? Where are our great museums? Where is this? Where is that? What's wrong with this place? What, what do these people do before I got here? <laughs> so, because you're you and you're like me, you'll decide to fix it. <laughs> but that's not, that's not necessarily true. What will really happen is you could go any of three ways. The first way is you'll disengage and you'll say, this place sucks. No wonder nobody lives in San Diego except, the, well, these three million people, but nobody else. Um, and you'll leave and you'll go back to where you came from and you'll go back to the life you had before. Okay, we'll miss you. Or you'll do what most people do. You'll focus in on your professional life and on your own family and on your, your little tiny bit of, bit of the world, and you'll forget about why that stuff is all broken, and you'll deal with it how it is. But if we're lucky, you'll be one of the small percentage who says, you know, I'd like to engage. I'd like to find a way to connect with this community. And if you're lucky, you'll decide to do that by hooking up with some people who are like-minded and who are also looking for a way to make a difference. Maybe other leaders who've, been, who've come to San Diego or have lived here a long time, but who just don't understand why things can't be made any better. Why do we never get anything done? Why does it seem like all the great institutions were built a long time ago and nobody knows how to do anything now? And you'll all sit around for a long time and try to be really smart because you are really smart. And probably everyone in your little group has done a lot of great things that are, that are not too little in their own careers. And you'll say, well, why don't we just fix this place? But if you're lucky you'll be humble. And that humility will save you. The decision that either you'll decide, maybe I need to learn a few things before I actually get around to fixing this city myself, or 
at least you'll say I'll fake it and I'll pretend I'm humble because I need some help and I'll need to talk to some people and, and listen to what they say and make them you know, feel listened to before I fix the city. Um, and so you'll go around and you'll start talking with people and asking them questions and this is where the transformation will begin. You and your colleagues who will gradually become your friends will go and interview leaders all around the region. You'll interview business leaders and political leaders, uh, social leaders, environmental leaders, activists, philanthropists, military leaders. You'll interview the media. You'll interview anybody you can think of who might know a little bit about what's going on and, and why isn't it any better. And you'll start listening and you'll, you'll go with the mind of what the Japanese call beginner's mind. Where you'll say, maybe I don't know everything. And you'll start taking notes and you won't even know where it's going. But what you'll learn will be something that no one else knows because no one else has been doing this. Everyone else has either been disengaging or fixing the place them, their darn selves. And no one else has been going around and saying, gee, what does everybody think? And what you'll find is that there's more consensus than you ever imagined, but you won't guess what the issues are about. You'll find out because people will tell you. Everybody wants to tell you what's important to them. And everybody wants to express their frustration. Everybody wants to tell you about the gaps. What are the issues that nobody's fixing? What's the unmet demand where there's actually potential to do something? And you and your group of leaders, you'll pick an issue and you'll keep doing this. You might pick foster children. You might pick education. You might pick the elderly or the homeless. You might pick the environment. Or you might pick economic development or urban planning or transportation or anything. You'll pick something, and you'll keep asking questions, and it will get more and more interesting. And your group will start establishing a reputation as, who are these crazy people who keep going around learning things? And what, what did they learn? And after a while, you'll be the people who know where the consensus is in the community. Not because you had a Chautauqua, not because you had a big formal event or gave yourself a title, or even said that you're smart because by now you've learned to stop saying that you're smart and to start telling people that you're curious. And people will start asking you, what, what did you learn, by the way? And when you tell them, they'll say, well, that's very interesting. And you know what? I agree with that. And they probably will because you asked 50 people to form your current understanding or maybe 100 people. And you had a lot of friends at this point who are asking with you and are helping you to formulate your understanding. And at this point, you're ready to do something because you've identified some unmet needs and some gaps. And if you happen to be me, you end up working on a couple of issues regarding sustainability. And you end up on a couple of boards of directors because you realize that your community is lacking people who will take the time to learn and then use their professional skills on boards of directors to create and help run institutions. And so you might end up on the board of directors of Move San Diego, which is the area's only nonprofit dedicated to improving our transportation and transit system. And you'll realize that you're sitting in a board meeting where the people around the table are, are not train buffs, they're real estate developers and environmentalists and green builders and people from city government and philanthropists and people who all had an unknown consensus. It turns out this particular community wants, really wants, better transit and that California's love affair with the car is a myth. 
Turns out Californians have a love affair with getting where they're going on time. <laughs> and there are a lot of great places to go around San Diego because it is a paradise in a lot of ways. But it's hard to get anywhere, and it's hard to get there without the traffic and then deal with the parking and all those things. And it's hard to hire employees if they can't get to work, and it's hard to develop new homes if people can't get to them. And so that was an unknown consensus. Everybody thinks that around here. And so now we have Move San Diego, a nonprofit organization dedicated to fixing that. And now we have Equinox Center, another new nonprofit organization. We actually had to start this one from scratch. We found out that there was no nonpartisan research and communication center, objective policy center, if you will, focused on the environmental sustainability of our region's economy, combining economic prosperity with healthy neighborhoods and communities with environmental health and preservation. And in other words, quality of life. It turns out everybody in San Diego wants those things. It doesn't matter whether you're from the Chamber of Commerce or the Sierra Club, you've probably volunteered to do something with Equinox Center by this time. So you're gonna have a good time. So when you move to San Diego, remember, <laughs> remember to create a process of team learning. Don't go it alone. And no matter how talented you are, don't think you have the answers. You'll have the answers when you ask everyone else in the community, and then you will have earned the right to speak about them and to work on them. All right, so I've got the task of telling you about the last two years of my life in eight minutes. Um, so let's move quickly. Uh, bring you greetings from Chattanooga. We're working day in and day out there to build a robust cultural economy. I'm going to tell you a little bit about how we're doing that. Start with a little bit about me. My name is Josh McManus. I'm co-founder and what we call creative strategist. Um, I grew up, uh, I was born in the fastest growing county in the nation, Gwinnett County, Georgia. In third grade, I moved to Polk County, Georgia, which I've always speculated was the slowest growing county in the nation. So I have a distinctive contrast that exists within me of urbanism and suburbanism, uh, even ruralism for, for that matter. Um, I uh, failed out of college twice, the first time at the United States Naval Academy, the second time at Georgia Tech. Luckily, I was able to convince the guy who's now the head of the Smithsonian to let me back into Georgia Tech. Made it out of there um, by the skin of my teeth. I don't have a trust fund. Uh, my parents cut me off when I was 18 years old. Um, I've always worked in nonprofits, uh, but all of my all of my education is in business. Um, why does any of that matter? Well. It's to tell you the one thing that I know about emerging leadership is that it's coming from unexpected places with very unexpected backgrounds and people that have formative experiences that are cross-disciplinary and very cross-passionate. So where did Create Here come from? Well, 20 mo 21 months ago, um, uh, Helen Johnson and I co-founded, uh, we sat down on a course to find intersections between arts, local economy, and culture while simultaneously shedding the bureaucracy and dysfunction that we had both witnessed in 10 years of not a traditional nonprofit world. Uh, we did a dozen city studies. We interviewed about 200 creative individuals, local leaders across disciplines. I loved what Aaron just said. And we sent out a survey to our friends and colleagues. About a thousand of them replied, and what we heard clearly from the next generation of uh, Chattanooga citizens is that our, our community uh, is not myopic in their focus. Uh, they desire a place that preserves natural beauty, promotes cultural creativity, focuses on education, and never ceases the pursuit of being the best mid-sized city in the country, if not the world. Okay, so what do we actually do? We start kind of the, the tip of our pyramid is emerging leadership development. 
So we focus on young leaders, and our community has had a terrible brain drain problem. So when we came out of the gates, that's Helen on the left-hand side. She and I said, well, we're going to need help to do this. We started finding um, uh, people that were fresh out of college and putting them to work. We would ask them what their passions are, what their skills are, and then we would make up a job for them. That model works so well that I now have 20 of them that work with me day in and day out. I don't make job descriptions. I find people's passions and I put them to work. We had so many people that enjoyed the Lead Here program that the Plugged In residency came about. These were people in other companies that said, I want to work at Create Here. And so we had to form a program that allows people in other companies to connect to each other. So these summer interns that are coming in from world-class universities need a program where they get together, learn about what's happening in our community, connect socially, um, and we do give away uh, uh, alcohol to uh, promote civic engagement. It works <laughs> splendidly. Um, and so, so that, that was a big piece. We also have this traditional leadership Chattanooga, the Chamber of Commerce model, which really should be called Orientation Chattanooga. So we're building a program called 40 Below that's more about civic engagement than about orienting to community because my frustration with our leadership program was that you were told a lot, but you were not asked to do a lot, and that we need to call all of our emerging citizens to the table to take action right now. The next piece is feeding the creative spirit. We started out by just putting together, putting people together in non-traditional situations. So we built a studio January 1st of 2007. It's uh, the most non-traditional place in Chattanooga, I would argue, and that it has no walls. Um, it always has uh, a lot of music, um, a lot of unexpected music, and uh, local art. Uh, we started making events, and events that brought things together like symphonic music and perhaps blue ribbon beer, um, so that you were seeing intersections between the traditional and um, the very progressive. We started moving things out into the streets instead of always staying within our building and inviting our neighbors into our work. It really kind of is a central vein that runs throughout. When we feed the creative spirit, we see intersections happen between people uh, that have not come together before, and it generates projects that we're not responsible for, but we have a small, small catalyst place in, and that helps. We also um, have thought a lot about retention and relocation. A lot of communities are talking about attraction retention, and we're lo really looking at retention first and building our talent from within. So our Arts Move program um, helps us bring people into our urban core. It's five uh, targeted neighborhoods. We've done $15,000 forgivable mortgages, and uh, we've relocated 27 people in who have bought over a million dollars worth of housing stock. But what's more interesting is their economic return is threefold that just in the first year. Uh, we, we also grant money. This is a retention aspect. Um, we made $150,000 in individual grants last year to a wide description of creativity. So there was graphic artists in there. There were architects, culinary artists. Um, and we saw a huge need for that within our community. We had over uh, $878,000 of requests from 96 applicants, and we ended up paying out 24 grants that have put up murals, have created new cookbooks, and, uh, and put projects in, in literature, southern literature, that we had not seen in our community before. Next piece is growing the creative economy. Helen has a BFA, and I have um, uh, a BS in management and an MBA, and so we have this constant friction of business versus the arts. And so I have um, uh, the insistence that uh, you can't be productive uh, creatively if you're not productive economically. So we started our springboard classes. Those are eight-week business planning classes where you start from your idea of your business and work all the way through a completed business plan. 
Uh, people actually pay to be in that, so they have skin in the game, but they play, pay on a sliding scale between $100 and $500 based on their AGI and their uh, family size. We just started roundtables because we have so many business leaders that were progressed beyond Springboard, but because creative stuff was going on, um, they were coming back and saying, we need to innovate, we need to innovate. So we've set these roundtables up with kind of an, uh, well, using a IDEO um, uh, methodology um, to, uh, to, to promote innovation within our gazelle businesses, within our community. And we do prescribe to an overall economic gardening model that we're not clustering folks. We are um, trying to build business at every size within the community. When we put an artist and a scientist in the same room working on a project together, uh, we've, seen, we've seen really breakthrough things happen, and that's a way that we're um, focusing on changing Chattanooga's creative economy. The final thing that I'm really excited about, and I'm, I'm going to run close on time, is our collective imagination process. Right now, we're building uh, what we hope to be the world's largest community visioning process, and we're going to ask 25,000 of our citizens to weigh in on where they want to see Chattanooga go. Chattanooga in 1984 was one of the first to leave the gates and do the community visioning thing, and we're ready to make the next lap, which is um, infinitely harder than the first lap, um, but we'll roll that process in the next four weeks um, and it's come from a group of emerging leaders, about 25 emerging leaders who are fascinated with what they can do to be a part of um, the city moving forward. Final thing is I was in DC about a year ago and I had the chance, I've always got my iPhone in my pocket and I was standing right here and I was going to walk down by the reflecting pool and um, I listened to, I actually listened and watched Dr. King give the I Have a Dream speech, and it made me think about dreams in Chattanooga. So I wanted to tell you a little bit about uh, some thing, people that are dreaming about things in Chattanooga through emerging leadership. Main Street was a dilapidated area that was at about 20% occupancy. Uh, we've completely um, made the turn there with um, uh, revitalization. We're at about 70% occupancy and should be full. In, uh, in the short future. Uh, this is a 23-year-old who's the youngest CFO in Chattanooga. He's a CFO at Create Here um, and is about to finish his CPA. Christy Burns has started a mountain music school. Chattanooga is the hammer dulcimer capital of the world, and Christy is um, uh, actually trying to change the face of music culture in Chattanooga. Shadow May came to us and thought, I can be a, a potter and support my family, and went through the springboard class and is doing that. Helen, my partner, said our tree canopy in Chattanooga is too small and uh, we have an urban heat island problem, so she built a program to put 1,600 trees in the ground in the next 18 months and 500 of those trees went in this year. These guys started an organic farm so that we can have local produce and uh, their dream now produces about $100,000 a year in annual produce. Allison Lebovitz um, and her One Clip at a Time project helps uh, students understand what happened in the Holocaust by equating it to paper clips. If you've ever seen the documentary that came out of Tennessee, Allison's involved in that. These guys, this picture was actually taken National Parking Day. Um, they're trying to uh, single-handedly single change uh, the genetic research for Duchenne's muscular dystrophy. That's Darius, and uh, he's losing his fight with that disease right now. But they are working to sell a million DVDs and, and raise $17 million in the next year. And I think I'm out of time. I had no idea of what was going to be said today. And I find it very interesting and very encouraging. Uh, these are young people, certainly in relationship to myself, several generations. Uh, and they are uh, inventing ways of engaging the citizens of cities. 
And that's both encouraging and sobering. It's sobering because they have to invent it, have to make it up from start. And you would think that there would be a discipline, a science, a best practice of engagement, and there isn't. So in a way, that opens up the path to the conversation of how you can create citizen engagement. Now, when it comes to leadership, it seems to me that cities have two choices. They either have Mayor Daley or they have citizen engagement. Because you can, if you have a strong, powerful leader who knows what he wants or she wants, it works, that works, that model works. Most places don't have that. San Diego does not have that. The alternative is citizen engagement. And we don't have that either, as, uh, as Aaron made abundantly, abundantly clear. Now, there are several obstacles to uh, citizen engagement. One is the lack of knowledge such that these young people have to invent it as they go along and in a very ingenious and encouraging way. But the other obstacle to it, which I'd like for some of you to address, is that it's countercultural in this sense. The, uh, Jimmy Cruz, I think, put it very well when he said, do we want this to be the country of I or the country of we? And from the point of view of uh, the cultural revolution that has been evolving in this country from the 60s and 70s, the direction has been the country of I. Uh, in private life, that doesn't work out too badly. In public life, it's a disaster. Because there is uh, the, the kind of, uh, oh, when I was working in the 50s and 60s and 70s, there, in almost every city that I went into, there was an establishment incorporated, an old boys network, very uniform, all male. Uh, it was full of flaws, uh, particularly the lack of diversity. But it also had an outstanding virtue, which is a sense of noblesse oblige, uh, sometimes rising to the level of stewardship, of wanting to leave the institution in better shape than uh, after, after they departed. That's not here anymore. That is what's missing from our public life. I, I, this week, with all the news about the AIG scandals, what what, what astonishes me, what shocks me the most, is that the people in our government who knew about the bonuses in advance, including Liddy, the president, and Tim Geithner, and the, the other leaders, had no conception of how, what a shock that would be. What a, you know, this is the belly of the beast. I mean, history doesn't usually cooperate that way. It usually isn't as neat as that. To take the people who were most responsible, the financial products division 
of AIG. I have to read this to you. This was in the headline of the New York Times last year. Joe Cassano, the head of the financial products division of AIG, quote, it's hard for us to even see a scenario within any realm of reason that would see us losing one dollar in any of our transactions. We are now several hundred billion dollars later. So what you have here is a contagion of groupthink, of infatuation with technology and computer models, misled by them in the most extraordinary way, uh, a kind of a blind uh, selfishness. Uh, and that, it's true that's an extreme form in the financial community, but it's not unknown in other aspects of our public life. So uh, everything you said about when you get people engaged, you can work with them, but you have to engage them, you have to transcend the uh, cultural, uh, the, the culture which has evolved in a way where people, where we've diversified our lifestyles, we've diversified our conception of individualism, uh, we're experimenting with all kinds of different lifestyles, but what we have lost is a sense of public life, a sense of citizenship, uh, as distinct from being a consumer. And so you have a dual task of engaging the public that is ready for this role, but at, but at the center with the understanding that there is no way that you can run a business or a city or a country without a moral, ethical centeredness. And so how do you get that ethical centeredness in with these ingenious innovations seems to me to be the name of the game. So let me throw that question uh, to all of us and uh, invite your uh, comments and your questions and participation. Yeah, back there, have we got, uh, good. Katie was sort of saying, uh, ignore the old boy network if it exists, uh, and just worry about your own stuff. And I thought that was an interesting approach. I guess I'd wonder, Dan, what you think of that approach, and also just in terms of to the extent that the old boy network can be um, helpful. Yeah, I mean, that was the, um, there are so many things about it that are so astonishing, and that's one of them. On the question of uh, including the old establishment, I think it would be a very bad mistake to leave them out. Uh, your experience, I think, is very encouraging. You saw when you engage them, because mm -hmm. you have, uh, from a generational point of view, the, uh, the ethic uh, of the generations younger than mine is to equate being ethical with legality. And you hear the statement, well, I didn't do anything wrong, I didn't break the law. Well, what has the law got to do with what's right and wrong? Mm -hmm. And so it seems to me that it would be a mistake not to bring in the point of view of my generation and the one younger who has a different conception of ethics that's not a 
associated, especially if you're looking in engagement to, re to recreate some sense of stewardship. I think the old boy network is a great asset, and I think that tossing them aside has been throwing the baby out with the bathwater. So if they can be brought back in, uh, in a way, but not necessarily the initiative. The initiative should come from the younger people, but they should be part of the solution. If I could just mention quickly the anchor discussion this morning around um, Cleveland really connects with, with that. Um, we, do, we are taking a lot of our work to anchor institutions and to employers, which is really not this generation. But what we're working on with them, as I think Omar talked about, is, is anchor institutions and employers have a self-interest in a strong city and in a, in a city that can attract college-educated professionals to come and work and live and invest and pay taxes. And so um, just as, as you say, we are focusing our initiative and our way around a next generation, but ensuring that all of the players in the city see their own self-interest in supporting that. Are people seeing the parallel between this and the design panel that we listened to a little while ago, that it's about problem solving? Um, and there's actually a really interesting thing here about not only, well, you know, how do you solve a problem? That's kind of the design question in a way. It's kind of how do you articulate the problem, uh, which in a sense becomes almost the leadership task. Um, so what about this? Um, what is it that uh, your young leaders have to do, you know, Eli in, in Toronto uh, with um, spacing? Uh, you know, um, you say everybody reads it, it's a must read. Mm. Uh, what is it doing to help lead? Yeah, well, I, what I think is um, it's a process, right? I mean, this has mm -hmm. been innovation that's bubbled up from the bottom for five or seven years now. Mm -hmm. And I think what we've started to see is that, um, um, is that some, of, some of the leaders of this organization have earned the trust of people inside of government, um, their voice. Well, how did they do that? By being right or by being uh, useful or by being present? You know, I, from, my, from my point of view, and this is, this is just my point of view, I think what they started to do is talk about the issues around public space, around green space and ecology and cycling, the, the issues that weren't being tackled by government. Mm -hmm. And what they started to do was mobilize community from, from the ground up, from the grassroots level, and start, you know, how can we bring these communities together, but in a positive way that starts to create discourse that we can then invite, I guess, the government or the media in to participate in. And I think over time, uh, people have started to see that voice as being a credible one and that one that if uh, members of the media or, or members of city government choose to become aligned with, they're not going to get burned, and it's mm -hmm. actually going to help them build their cause. It might be pleasant. It might exactly. be fun. Right. Well, and it's kind of Dan's uh, engagement uh, versus Mayor Daly story, except in this case, you know, Mayor Daly is a bicycle rider. So uh, that's right. Yeah. And David Miller was at the, uh, the five-year spacing launch party, and uh, so he's the mayor of Toronto. And, and there's, so there's a really positive relationship there. Great. Dan. You know, I'd like to make a connection between Mayor Pinalosa's comments and uh, Eli's and Aaron's, that um, you, the, the space issue is critical to the quality of life that people, for example, in San Diego crave. The, your interviews, I'm sure, brought up the surprising consensus about various aspects of quality of life that would be encompassed in that space concept. And you have a, a practical device, an innovation, 
that has achieved in Toronto almost universal uh, acceptance as a way of achieving uh, achieving engagement. So I think that they, if you take together, put together what you're saying about the the kinds of agreement that you find when you do this interviewing, and then you have this creation of a media mm -hmm. that can have universal acceptance, I think you're well on your way to creative uh, citizen engagement. Mm -hmm. I, I just wanted to add a quick point. I think that the, the notion of social media and blogging and the Facebooks and the, and the podcasts of the world are, are an absolute key to what we've been able to do in the city is because they're Everyone stays inside in the winter, but I mean, there's all of, right? so how do you connect together? But there are all of these pockets of creatives, especially when you're thinking cross-disciplinary, that would never connect to one another. So how do you bring their voices together, and then how can you quickly and extremely cost-effectively add massive scale? Um, and then as you start getting more advanced from just blogging and you start adding things like wikis, uh, then you have really powerful collaborative and filtering, filtering technologies so that you can get the best ideas to float to the top and become more robust and be presented and, and organically grown in a framework where they can then be presented to others. So it's both these concepts kind of working together, yeah. engagement and the technology, not yeah. one or the other, right? We had a comment over here, question? Yeah, I, I've, I've got a question um, about, I'm, I'm from San Diego, uh, although I came out here 30 years ago from Detroit, which many people wow. have done. A, um, so I have a sensitivity <laughs> to everybody, yeah. But I, the, the comments about lack of civic engagement in San Diego, I find really, uh, uh, I think you're crazy. I, I just don't... <laughs> I just don't understand where those comments are coming from. When I came here 30 years ago, the city was run by a very effective old boys network. It was Pete Wilson, a couple other guys that, that, you know, three martini lunches, and they figured out what to do with the city. They actually did a hell of a good job. But since then, because of civic engagement, government's transparent. Government now needs to be open to the public. So while we, and I, I think we have, we, have, we have tons of people here that are, um, my age and older that are engaged, so I'm not. I'm not sure either. I'm missing the point because, or, or, or I still think you're off base. Well, thanks for your comment. It reminds me of the first meeting I ever had with Bill Gates, who, other than hi, the first thing he ever said to me was, "That's the stupidest thing I've ever heard in my life." <laughs> <laughs> Two years later, I was working for him as his technology advisor. So <laughs> I take that as a good sign. Perhaps you'll hire me for something in a couple of years. <laughs> <laughs> what I've found is that there's a very small percentage of San Diegans who are very engaged, um, and perhaps you're one of them, sir. Um, there's a very small percentage who feel that it's utterly clear uh, how to get something done in San Diego, and, and um, then there's everybody else. Um, and I could present a group of people large enough to fill every chair in this uh, conference room uh, who would say they don't know how to become engaged in San Diego, or who would say they feel engaged in an advocacy of a particular point of view, but don't know how to get engaged in the larger discussion beyond just pushing their agenda against some invisible, unspecifiable force of inertia, uh, which they assume somebody's behind. 
this 400-pound marshmallow that's too big to go around and, and too, too big to eat and too gooey to go through, and they just, they're just blocked and they don't understand. Um, that's a much more common feeling, a feeling of a vague impossibility of making anything in particular happen. And so what happens is the civic dialogue quickly digresses into uh, recriminations and petty fights about specific projects and issues. Um, and so you'll find uh, leading groups in our area from any part of society spending all or substantially all of their resources um, advocating for or against particular very small projects. Should this building be built in this place? Things like that. While in the meantime, our own regional government forecasts a population growth of 500,000 to a million in the next 20 years. So while everybody debates what should we do on this block, Everyone else thinks, well, well, my entire suburb is being tripled in size. I hope you enjoy this discussion, but who's going to talk about this? Uh, so the, the issues that matter to the bulk of people are going undiscussed and unled, while the people who have a leadership capability um, focus on an arbitrarily small selection of issues and on fighting one another. And that has to change. This will be food for thought. Yeah. <laughs> Katie, let me ask you a question about um, the Aerotropolis idea. I, I think thinking about Dan's point about um, traditional leadership, your own approach to uh, saying we're not focused on traditional leadership, I think about the Aerotropolis, which has been uh, a stated goal priority of traditional business leadership, uh, which seems to me uh, would really do everything to undermine Care. what you're trying to do in Detroit. Aerotropolis is to is is a concept of taking it's it's floating around the world now, uh, and the concept essentially is to take an airport, build a, a city around it, if you will, that. Uh, in Detroit's case, would be far, 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 well, it would be outside of Detroit and, and certainly uh, in a city that, in a region that's not growing. You, Basically, you, be in, in the Detroit area, it would be in a greenfield. Yeah, exactly. It would be in a greenfield. So my question is, you have the traditional business leadership advocating for a plan that essentially undermines your notion of 15 by 15. Mm -hmm. Do you ignore it? Do you confront it? How have you handled that? Um, I wish Dave wanted to come up here. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I think uh, we are walking that fine line because of the nature of our work and, and who our partners are, um, who our board is. Um, and so I, I don't think that we certainly are going to go out and, and directly confront it. But the, the things that we're trying to do um, together with other foundations in, in, in Detroit, we have this new economy initiative that's 10 foundations, um, is, is looking at those things that can take an aerotropolis idea and translate it into something that's, that's stronger for the region as a whole and for the city of Detroit. So we're really looking at um, logistics and trade as a whole and how do you develop a whole strategy around the fact that we have an international bridge and tunnel coming in directly into our city and can we do workforce around that and change that and, and have the aerotropolis to the extent that it moves forward um, uh, benefit the city and its and its connection so um, we have to we have to work with the realities where we are um, 
this is a, a small vision in the in the um, context of a lot of regional visions, but we focus on how do we do something positive for the city and make it work within this bigger climate. So we've got the identification of leaders, and then we have the exercise of leadership, which are really two different kinds of things, right? And so then the issue, I guess, for you, Carol, is to what degree then um, would we look at, say, the foundation promoting the exercise of leadership in a broader way? Um, you know, it'll happen, and I know that you don't exactly want to get into that now, but it's going to have to, you know, at some point, you know, be dealt with. What do you think that will do to your, your effort 15 by 15? Uh, um, I think we're, it, for our effort, we're really able to focus on the core of the city, but we are going to walk up against controversy. The biggest controversy we're anticipating right now is, is charges of gentrification and, um, and in a city so dominated by race, a, a race debate, that this is somehow a white strategy in a, in a city that's, that's very predominantly African-American. And, and we thoroughly believe that, that the population that we're attracting is, is more um, diverse than any population that's lived in Detroit for, for generations. But that's the, the, the real um, challenge that we think we're going to get into around our strategy. Well, I want to thank our panel, especially because for turning a discussion about leadership into a focus on citizenship. This is worth pursuing. Uh, so thank you very much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.